Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Hello, and how's it going? Thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich. I am an agribusiness recruiter, and it really is my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the people, companies, ideas, and organizations shaping the future of agriculture. Well, I love episodes on food security. I think that if if we really want to label ourselves the future of agriculture, one thing we have to be talking about is food security, the fact that Myself, living in Texas and the United States, have it extremely good. I don't worry about where my next food is coming from. But a big part of the future of agriculture is how do we continue to feed everybody, not just those who are fortunate enough to be born into a situation where uh, they can afford it. So I love talking about stories about food security, and you really can't tackle food security without talking about an organization like Heifer International. If you've heard of Heifer, you probably know that their kind of core central narrative uh, where they founded their organization and how they've grown is through do- individual donor like yourself or me can purchase an animal. Maybe it's a heifer. Maybe it's a goat. Maybe it's a duck. Uh, it could be a, all sorts of different animals. Purchase an animal that is given to a family, and that family commits to giving at least one of the offspring of that animal onto another Family. So in that way, it's kind of a pay it forward model and it's a sort of um, teach a person how to fish model rather than just giving them fish where you're actually equipping them with the means to start supporting their family rather than just a way to get through the, uh, the next meal. So I think it's really, really fascinating. I knew a little bit about Heifer. Really, what I just told you was basically all I knew about Heifer before this interview. So I got to talk to David Norman. Uh, David is the VP of Investment Program, Senior VP of Investment Program, excuse me, at Heifer International. Um, so he really gave me some good insights into the work they're doing, not just with that uh, traditional model of what I said, but also they've gone so far as to develop markets so that when they provide these animals at scale, there's actually a market to support uh, the product of, of those animals. So really, really interesting work. I didn't realize they're also into other commodities, uh, not necessarily livestock based as well. So very, very excited to uh, share this interview with you. Please enjoy my interview with David Norman, Senior Vice President of Investment Programs at Heifer International. Very excited to have on the show today. We have David Norman, who's a senior vice president of investment programs at Heifer International. Uh, David, I understand you're joining us from D.C., so welcome and thanks for being here. Yeah, thank, thanks, Tim. It's great to talk to you. Well, I, I'm excited to learn more about Heifer International because I know, I think, I think I know at least the basics of the program, but little else. So maybe if you could just start for those uh, that haven't heard of Heifer International with the uh, the sort of the spiel you give if you're sitting next to somebody on an airplane overseas. Uh, what would you tell someone who asked you, what is Heifer International? Well, I think it, this is there are a lot of people that have heard of it, but they've heard different pieces of Heifer and kind of describing the full picture can be can be a little bit challenging, but we're about a 70-year-old organization that was uh, created actually out of the uh, an ideal of a of a fellow named Dan West, um, who who for um, 
philanthropic reasons was was involved in famine relief in Spain after the Spanish Civil War. And I think one of the things that frustrated him in doing that doing that that hardcore famine relief was, you know, all we were doing was passing out food and getting people to the next day. And what really needed to happen was introducing means of production and getting people back on their feet to be able to feed themselves. So the idea of 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 distributing livestock, especially um, especially cattle, uh, in some cases, bred cattle with the idea that bringing in cattle where there weren't any and introducing in introducing them into a, a household or into a farm that provided both milk and meat. Uh, but there was a unique twist that he had that uh, that we developed called passing on the gift and that the first offspring of that animal would then go to the next family and on and on and on, which created somewhat of a of the, the idealized version of a sustainable model. And <clears throat> that that concept still sticks with us today. However, we Heifer International and it's as like a lot of organizations have evolved over the years to uh, to work in a lot more different agriculture sectors, certainly a lot more than just than just Spain post Spanish Civil War. Um, but we now work in you know a number of different livestock groups as well as in a number of different commodity groups, including including coffee and cocoa and honey and all of those kind all of those commodity groups that that present an opportunity to generate income at the household level. Um, a lot of the history of heifer has been focused primarily on food security, but a little like the, the founder, the realization that food security is, can, can almost be just the ability to get people through the day, through the week, through the month, but to be able to move people out of poverty, uh, was the, is become our primary objective, uh, so that they can sustainably uh, move forward in lives, and we've adopted a, a, the approach that we call being able to being able to generate a living income, uh, which is you know the, the the having enough income to have safe housing, to have enough uh, money uh, to be able to educate your children, and to provide uh, uh, of course to provide a dependable um, food source. So, but being able to do that. Uh, certainly has required us to to look much more holistically in the entire agriculture value chains, not just production. So looking at input supply, finance, of course, logistics, transport, processing, uh, and and more recently uh, a recognition that dependable and fair markets aren't always available, but those are the kind of things that we those are the, that's probably one of the biggest problems that holds us back is making sure that the markets are transparent and that they're fair and that they're dependable year in and year out. Could you expand on that a little bit? Like uh, what would be an example of a, a market that's not dependable or fair? Well, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, in some of the places, you know, where we've worked, uh, where we've done a, what we think is a really good job it it, uh, uh, increasing uh, uh, farmer and farmer groups' ability to produce, even process and even transport. Uh, but when there are when there are not enough markets 
that are competing for those products or they're not in the regions that they that we need them to be in. Um, I, I'll give you a perfect example. That is in uh, uh, dairy uh, in uh, Tanzania, in the southern highlands of Tanzania. And this is one this is one that I've been working on directly myself and a number of us have because it's been a, a, a pretty big problem in that we've done a wonderful job of increasing production, moving farmers together, putting in infrastructure to be able to to, to collect milk, to chill the milk, and to transport the milk, but there aren't enough processors available in that region. So one of the challenges that, that we're faced with is how do we incentivize additional processors to come closer to where the production is? In some cases, that requires uh, us us making investments uh, beyond just the programmatic work, but actually looking at making active investments to attract uh, additional markets or processors to regions that they otherwise wouldn't be in. Um, and I, there are examples like that in, in, in a lot of other places. Uh, I can use the example of, of meat goats in Nepal. Uh, the exact same thing exists there where we work really hard at increasing the production uh, standards, the speed of production in uh, meat goats, but the markets are either immature or that they're not very transparent and there are too few of them. So in some cases, we're putting in some infrastructure that allows us to work at a larger scale, uh, which attracts bigger market players. Uh, and you, you basically want markets to compete for your products. Right. That makes perfect sense. So if I'm understanding correctly, the, the, the history and the core of, of the Heifer International model is to rather than just giving food, you would give a, an animal in, in maybe a dairy heifer or in the, in the two examples, you use a dairy heifer or a meat goat animal that they can then breed. It can reproduce or, or you can give it to them bread and then they give up part of the offspring, but they keep the uh, the, the future potential of either milking uh, the dairy animal or continuing to breed the meat goat. Uh, but then you run into this problem of where are they going to go with it as as this happens at scale, right? And, and it sounds like maybe you're providing those investments so that so that the system can grow along with the production. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. And I, and I think one of, one of the really important steps, and, and I think this is an example of one of those things that, we do is kind of part of our DNA that we almost forget to talk about that, you know, a lot of what we we're doing, we're doing it at the community level. It's difficult to do this one farmer or one farm family at a time. So we, we tend to work at the community level in organizing communities um, so that we we're not spread all over a country but that we're focused on key targeted communities. And the first step that we always do is we have a, a the, the, the building a foundational level of what we call social capital and social capital basically is addressing the uh, the, the needs of a, of a community to understand itself to understand its needs to to address issues such as individual and community accountability transparency and the need to work together uh, we've got a, 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 a well, a well-worn program that we call the 12 cornerstones. That is the first thing that always happens. And I, sometimes I'm convinced that if we did that and nothing else, you would still see progress. Even if there were no animals distributed, you didn't do any additional technical assistance, but just do that first step 
of building good social capital as a, as to give them hope and some tools and how they can move forward in working together. Now, so once we've done that, we then organize the farmers into groups. In some cases, those groups become cooperatives, and those cooperatives are what uh, is where we really build the strength and the capacity to do such things as as technical assistance of providing inputs and in some cases even providing credit to those farmers through those through their cooperatives that are created through the programs. And even before before moving in and building that social capital and starting with the twelve cornerstones, how do you select which communities to to target? Well, that's a little bit. That's a little bit of both um, art and science. Um, <clears throat> all of our, all of our the countries that we work in are all managed by they're all local staff. We don't send in you know uh, uh, we don't send in teams of American expats to organize and run a country. Those are all being run by local staffs that know their countries well. They know their whichever agriculture value chain we're working in. Hopefully they know them well or we're putting together teams that do. And then depending upon which, um, which agriculture value chain we're working in, in some cases that's a, that's, it can be a fairly easy thing. Uh, to be able to determine the, the regions of the country that lend itself to producing that commodity. Uh, in some cases where there are villages or communities that we have already worked with, we know them, they know us. Uh, in some cases it may be, um, it may be taking advice from, uh, local decision makers, governments, agriculture extensions, uh, the ministries of agriculture may have set some priorities and they may also be making some investments and, and be focused on some communities that we can build on. So in some cases, we may not have to be starting from, from, from ground zero, uh, so that things can work faster and better and quicker. Uh, in other cases, you know, we may just find a place that is, has been completely ignored by development programs, um, and that is, you know, out of the way that represents a great opportunity to affect a large number of people. Um, and, and, and that, that does go to, uh, one of our, one of our, one of our changes and objectives over the last couple of years as we began looking at living income, uh, in putting, putting out some institutional goals where we've actually established a goal of moving four billion families out of poverty. Wow. Um, and in order to do that, uh, you gotta, you gotta be able to design programs and work with communities that present the kinds of opportunities and the kind of numbers that help you achieve that goal. Um, and, you know, in some cases there may be very small villages that are a long way away that it just doesn't make sense to go to. I mean, it, it makes sense to your heart, but it may not make sense from a programmatic and a, and an operational perspective. And so we have to make those choices. And most of, most of the time those choices are made by the field teams because they're the ones that lead the design efforts. And as those field teams are operating within their own community, because they're not expats, they're, they're local to that area. Uh, will, will the people in those communities even know that Heifer International is involved? Uh, do they say, Hey, we are incorporating this, uh, strategic effort on the part of Heifer International to build this co-op, uh, to grow our community? Or is, does Heifer kind of operate behind the scenes where they may not even know that you're, you're kind of a driving force behind all this? 
No, we we we're 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 very visible. Uh, in a, in a lot of cases, you know, it it, it does bring up a, a a point that I should have made earlier. You know, in the way that we 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 fund our work and the and the supporters that we have for our work, you know, it, that allows us the kind of flexibility to choose the communities. Uh, more than organizations or nonprofits that are implementing programs that are funded by government agencies or foundations that, you know, really they want, they want more visibility than the implementing agency. In our case, since the overwhelming majority of what we do is funded by individuals who are individuals or organizations that buy into our mission, um, we are very visible. The communities know us as Heifer International, uh, and, and, and it's really touching. They're, they're really proud to be part of that, and I think a lot of that comes from that first stage in building social capital and the way that we do it and the way that we connect them to each other. It's a, it's a very moving thing to witness, and, and in some ways they kind of become part of the family, so to speak. Uh, and, and likewise, you know, with the, with the whole concept of passing on the gift, uh, even if there aren't, even if there isn't livestock that's being passed around, the passing on the gift can also include the training. So you can have one community that then passes on the gift of both the social capital training and, uh, the technical training that we're providing, um, we're providing the people that are whatever the, whatever the, uh, intervention is, whether it's, dairy or goats or coffee or whatever it is. So they become kind of part of the team. And when you say social capital, is I mean, is there a difference between social capital and trust or, or what exactly do you mean by social capital? Yeah, well, I mean, trust is part of that. Um, social capital dependent, you know, the, the realization that, you know, a community uh, is de- that individuals are dependent upon one another. Other pieces of social capital include gender inclusion, sustainability, sustainability of the village, um, financial accountability, transparency in financial transactions. I could, I could read off what those 12 cornerstones are. Uh, I'd have to pull, I'd have to pull them out and remember them, but the acronyms actually, there's an acronym form for passing on the gift. So there are a lot of components. Uh, trust is a key, is a key part of that. Uh, but, but anyway, I, having, having described, you know, the connection that the communities have to Heifer as an organization kind of gives them a little bit of a incentive to take that, pass that gift on. Right. And actually, uh, I may, I would love to include the 12 cornerstones in the show notes. I, I won't act, ask you to pull them out right now and read them off. But if, if possible, I'd love to get those from you afterwards so we could put them in the show notes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm sure like, you know, any worthy cause uh, results can vary based on the work you're doing out there. What are some of the challenges that uh, can sometimes present, uh, you know, prevent or delay communities from prospering as a result of, of Heifer's work? Well, you, you, I think. I think anybody that works in this, in the space of economic development, particularly in developing countries, um, you know, you're faced with the sta- the standard challenges that come your way, you know, economic and political instability. Uh, you know, I think anybody that's worked in this sector long enough, I've been in it now for 25 years and you think back on the places where you did great work, but for whatever, whatever and made great progress, 
but either, you know, political instability or economic shocks hit the region and things didn't move forward. Um, the, I mean, that kind of goes without so climate change has become a really important uh, part of our work and a significant challenge that is far more visible in the developing world than than most people in uh, uh, in the developed world can can recognize. I mean, we can talk about it, you know, when when we we notice it being hot or raining more or having more storms. But when when you live when you live in the developing world and you're kind of that close to the edge, so to speak, on you know what what the next day is going to bring, those climate shocks are really significant. Places where uh, desertification is going on in 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 sub-Saharan Africa or in in Bangladesh or Nepal or India, where there have been a number of significant setbacks, if you will. The flooding, the flooding that just happened in in Nepal this year uh, and in Bangladesh this year was a huge challenge for our work there. So, and, and you know, we jump in. We're not a relief agency, but you know, when you have relationships with those communities. Um, we jump in and we, we have, we have special fundraising, uh, drives to raise money to, to be able to deal with some of those kind of shocks in those, in those villages. Now, those are the exciting ones. Those are the, those are kind of the big ones. Uh, but the more mundane challenges, um, are usually are economic. You know, the, the uh, that you can work really hard to strengthen the value chain. And when we talk about the value chain, you're talking about all the pieces that are in between a crop, a commodity being produced and consumed. And in most cases, there are businesses and enterprises that, that have to be successful. You know, if, and it's a, it's a chain. Like I said, the value chain, if there's a weak link in the chain, you know, the whole thing can crumble. Uh, so you're, you're constantly working to fix something that isn't working well, uh, whether it's the markets aren't dependable or the transport isn't dependable, the roads aren't very good, uh, the financial mechanisms to be able to buy and sell uh, are somewhat fragile. So you're constantly working on those. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you can have a key enterprise that's that you know you've worked with, and you've, you, you we may have had a role in creating it that just doesn't work. Uh, so that's always disappointing. You got you got to keep going, start over, fix the problem, and move on. But it slows you down. Can you point to maybe one one win or success uh, that you've experienced that just kind of personally made it all worthwhile for you? Oh yeah, I've got I've got several of those. Uh, one one is uh, was was. Really fun to do. We work uh, in, in. I'll give you an example. One just here recently in Mexico, where um, we have we're working with a number of cooperatives in a, in a fairly large project that we're working in a with a number of value chains. One in particular was was a challenge, and that was in uh, Robusta Coffee. I don't know if, and without wanting to dive too deep into the different kinds of coffee, Arabica is what you're going to drink when you go to Starbucks. Robusta is the cheap industrial coffee that's going to be made into energy drinks or Nescafe or instant coffee. Anyway, Robusta coffee has more farmers that grow Robusta coffee tend to be poorer. Um, <clears throat> and it's grown on more marginal land and the markets aren't as dependable 
for that variety of that kind of coffee. And therefore, finance isn't readily available because anyone that's financing uh, working capital for harvest and processing of that variety of coffee simply um, are reluctant to lend. There's too much risk. It's too many unknowns. So we were working with three cooperatives down there and in discussions with them. Their key problem was they didn't have dependable markets. They were selling to uh, what they call the coyotes, who were <clears throat> basically people would come to the village and buy it for as cheap as they as they as they could. In some cases, they were lending the money at higher interest rates uh, to be able to finance the harvest. So. One of the choices that we had was if we could step step in as an intermediary and bring finance in as a solution that would allow them to <clears throat> have affordable working capital and be able to harvest on a schedule and aggregate at a volume that could get into a very dependable and much higher paying market. And so what we did is we brought in another lender uh, the, a lender that was reluctant to do it, and we we structured a financial guarantee where we underwrote the risk of the loan, and we also dealt with the currency risk. Uh, and the coffee was harvested on schedule; it was pooled into uh, much a a much much larger aggregate of robusta coffee, and moved into the markets for significantly higher prices. So we did we did two things. We dramatically lowered their cost of finance, and we dramatically increased the net price of the product. And <clears throat> to see the, look, the looks on their faces as they were able to pay their bills and send their kids to school, and, and, and to basically realize a much, a much, a much easier win, winter going into winter with, uh, with, with that kind of money in the bank. That that was really gratifying to me. You mentioned earlier about the fact that you've been around for 70 years now and and exist mostly on uh, donations by individuals and organizations that, that buy into your mission and vision. Uh, I mean, that in itself is a tremendous feat in order to continue to do these types of projects like that one in Mexico you just mentioned. Um, how how do you do that? <laughs> how do you uh, how do you. How are you able to grow the effectiveness of your mission so well, relying on those individual donors? Well, you know, it, well, it, it actually is. It's a it's a significant challenge. Um, you know, it, it as a as a model, I you know, I think it we do have an interesting model that's more describable than a lot of development organizations. Uh, and you know, I, I don't know if you're not on our uh, uh, Christmas catalog list, we'll get you on that list. Uh, where a lot of people, including family members of mine and a lot of friends and people that I run into all the time who said, you know, I love what you do and you have the ability to buy a goat. Now you don't get the goat. The goat's going to be, the goat's going to be delivered in a project that's working in goats. You can buy a beehive. You can buy, you can buy rabbits, ducks, all kinds of things. And the thing that makes that, Kind of gratifying, you know, and this is a Christmas season coming up, so I'll give my Christmas, my Christmas commercial here. But, you know, I mean, people get, buy gifts and get gifts all the time when they realize that, geez, I really didn't need anything. And the person I bought that for didn't really need anything. But when they open that envelope and go, wow, I, you really bought a goat? 
in my name or a heifer in my name, and it's really going somewhere. I've got something that, in other words, it's something that makes people feel good. Now, that has its limits. So one of the things what, what we try to do is be able to be able to leverage that that those funds come in, allow us some intellectual and creative freedom to make choices about where we go and do things. But we do our dead level best to try to leverage what we're doing with other key partners. And one of the and so we have a whole department that work on that kind of that kind of relationship management. And it's unbelievable what they do now. I, we also have another really big push where there are a lot of, a lot of private sector organizations and both corporations, both major and minor, both multilateral and, and multinational and local that, that like to be part of it. And they have an enormous role in designing, in, in helping us design what we call co-development, designing programs. And in some cases, they re- they represent a major player in the market for products that come through those value chains. So having that <clears throat> having that that creative freedom that comes from the individual contributions that allow us into the conversation with large food uh, multinational food corporations uh, that you know in many cases they want they want to be part of something like this and in some cases it just makes business sense for them to be part of this uh so you know i i could go through the list of who those organizations are but they include some of the big players in on the world food scene um walmart costco cargill elanco that's just to name a few of the organizations that that are part of our conversation and in some cases part of our programs and our program designs. That's fantastic. And I know, you know, stories such as the ones you've shared today are a big part of kind of spreading that message and showing the effectiveness. But I also know one challenge in the nonprofit world, especially in, in agricultural development is, uh, is basically proving your effectiveness through, you know, monitoring and evaluating the effectiveness of your programs. Could you talk a little bit about that for those that are not, uh, in, in that space to understand what you all go through to, to show, uh, that what you're doing is working? Absolutely. We actually have uh, what are, uh, an entire department called Mission Effectiveness. Um, the leader of the Mission Effectiveness team is is in the C-suite, so to speak. We have a chief of Mission Effectiveness. Uh, and within that group, um, they are responsible for uh, – for all of the strategies that we're developing as an organization, they're also responsible for all of the all of the programmatic design processes, and therefore the identification of the impacts, how we're going to collect that data, how we analyze that data, how we digest that information, and how we make changes to our programs to improve our effectiveness. And it also goes a long way to help us communicate with the outside world about that effectiveness. Uh, that's something that our, that our, our CEO, Pierre Ferrari has been, he has been adamant on that since he joined the organization. It was through his leadership that we created, uh, what's one of the, 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 a, a significant, I don't want to say the largest part of the organizations and programs, but it's pretty close to it. Uh, and some amazing people that, 
are some of the best in the business on impact monitoring, reporting, analysis, and presentation. David, I've heard that uh, I've never been there, but I've heard the Heifer campus is is a site to see and kind of a learning laboratory for food, global food security. Uh, can, can you just tell us a little bit about it and kind of paint the picture of uh, what it's like to uh, to work there in Arkansas? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. The, uh, the 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 main campus where our headquarters we have a number of we have a number of facilities around the country. Uh, the the main campus. Uh, there in Little Rock is, it's, uh, next door to the Clinton Library. Uh, it's a, it's a, an extremely unique and beautiful facility that, uh, was built as a, a lead building, a lead platinum, I believe we are. Um, so there's a, a lot of incredible sustainable features to this, to this facility. Um, it's where our, we're headquartered. Uh, we also have a, uh, um, the a, a learning center that's part of that that has a really interesting uh, walkthrough that presents the work and the importance of the work and the effectiveness of the work in a way that's that's um, that's both entertaining and very very visual and very hands on. Uh, in the in the in the last year, we've added the urban farm um, that gives us the ability to to show and demonstrate things right there on our campus in Little Rock that's that's like a small version of what we have on another facility, which was the original headquarters called Heifer Ranch. We actually have about, a, I think it's something around 1,500 acres um, in, um, in Perryville, uh, which is about 45 minutes to an hour away from Little Rock in our headquarters. And on that facility, we have a lot of, Livestock that we manage there, uh, both for tra- for training. We have training programs where we are actually <clears throat> training farmers and sustainable farming practices that are connected to the work that we're doing here in the U.S., uh, both in livestock and in uh, uh, and in horticulture. And as a matter of fact, we've actually the ranch has now gone into the pig production business to support the uh, forested hog farmers that are part of our uh, uh, grassroots co-op work that we're doing there in Arkansas. Uh, there's also another facility up in Massachusetts called the Heifer Farm, uh, and that has a number of programs that have uh, training programs, internship programs, summer camps, and the like. And all of these are intended, you know, to 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 give a hands-on experience to to mostly youth, but people of all ages, uh, in, in agriculture, sustainable agriculture, and the conditions around the world and why what we do is important. So it's, 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 uh, those are all really interesting facilities and a lot of fun. Um, and I, you know, I try to get out there as often as I can. And do, do you provide, uh, tours to the general public at, at those places? We absolutely do. All right. Well, those, at all, those at all three. Oh, at all three. Great. Uh, actually, something you just said brought up a, a question that I that just popped into my mind here. So, if if let's say this Christmas my family and I decide that we want to purchase a a heifer to give to someone through your program, what are the logistics of that? So, I know obviously all this happens at scale and it depends on on a series of things, but. Uh, where, where, uh, you know, who at Heifer kind of goes out and procures this 
uh, who at Heifer International goes out and procures this animal? Where did the, how do they make the decision of where to source it and how does it physically get to the, the people? Well, <clears throat> I'm fairly certain that now all of the animals are primarily sourced as close, uh, as close as possible to the recipient. So it, it would, in, in the, in the old days, you know, and there's some great stories involving some real characters. There was a group called the Heifer Cowboys that, you know, in the in the 40s and 50s would, you know, they would they would buy the cat mostly cattle here in the U.S. They would be loaded on ships. These cowboys would go with with the animals to the country. They're offloaded and they're taking those. Those are great romantic stories. That's not practical and cost effective to do. Uh, the overwhelming majority, I, I, I shouldn't say overwhelming majority. I think virtually everything is procured locally. Again, we're not we're not introducing any species or variety of livestock that isn't already that there isn't already a market for or availability of inputs and supplies for. So I think everything is pretty much being done locally. Okay, that makes sense, and that actually answers my next question about how do you make sure that the animal is genetically suited for that area, but but actually that would solve itself if you're buying it as close to the location as possible. But I think that's uh, really fascinating, and, and as I understand your job, uh, part of your, your role is to determine how to sort of strategically invest the resources Heifer International has uh, you know, most effectively. Can you tell us just a little bit more about uh, how you view that decision-making process and what uh, considerations uh, come to top of mind there? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there, there's two, two really different things. There's one, one set of decisions about where we're spending our money, uh, to support our programs. And that's, a, that's a much more institution wide decision process where field teams design their programs. They propose them. We evaluate and we choose my role as investment. And this is a fairly new thing around the subject of impact investing. Uh, as as we start looking, one of the one of the one of the key drivers uh, over the last couple of years is this is like this is all well and good, uh, and we're making progress, but it's it's way too slow. Um, or you know, it, we think this can be done much much faster. And one way to do that, there are a number of interventions that we're adding to try to speed up the impact of our development. And one of them is through the deployment is through the deployment of capital. In some cases, it's our capital. Um, so I'll give, I'll give you some examples. I, uh, like the example I've already described, the one in uh, in Mexico, where you know we can sit back and say, wouldn't it be nice if a bank were to figure out how to lend to those, those Robusta coffee growers? Um, and eventually someone will. They'll figure it out. It'll be great. Well, that, that, that takes too long. So my role is to work with the field teams to identify where we can make investments that can either leverage other capital uh, and to make it happen faster. Um, and if, for example, we can be talking about needing processors in Tanzania, uh, but if no one's willing to finance it or they're reluctant to take on all the risk, you know, my role is to understand and collaborate with other financiers and to, and, and to present as an investment, an opportunity to invest alongside co-investors, in some cases maybe by ourselves, into bringing capital in to fix a problem in a value chain and to be able to make it happen faster. 
And as you look really broadly just at, at the future of your mission and, and food security in general, uh, looking into the future, what, what do you see as the big challenges we need to overcome so that, uh, that, that you all can realize your mission? Well, you know, I think, you know, I think capital is going to be part of it. Um, technology will take care of itself. It's moving, it's moving fairly fast. I think, I think policy is going to continue to be a problem and an obstacle. Uh, that's both agriculture and economic development policies within the countries that we work in. Uh, climate change is going to be a, a, a constant challenge. We, we have to build in, uh, a, uh, climate adaption techniques throughout uh, our program. We're going to have to constantly do that. Some cases we may have to move some of our programs. We may have to change, um, change the commodity groups that we're working in in some countries. Uh, so that's, I think that's always going to be a challenge. And, and I think we're, we're, we're not an organization that I would call on the, on the bleeding edge of political instability. We, you know, there are, I don't, I can't think of any place that's just, you know, th- that's a CNN story constantly. Hmm. Um, that, you know, and I've worked other places where we did work in places like that. So it was kind of a, you know, you're, you're, you have your go bag ready to go all the time. Uh, we tend to not work in those kind of places because, you know, we're after long term, long term sustainability and, and we have the opportunity to make choices about that. So. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has really been insightful, and, and um, I feel very connected to the, the work you're doing. Uh, and thank you very much. I, I'm excited to share this with everybody. How cool was that? I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did with David Norman. It really gets back to the central thesis of this show, which is that Agriculture is going to be the future solution to our problems and how they can solve social problems uh, in addition to your basic problems of food, shelter, clothing, natural resources, that sort of thing. So anyway, I really enjoyed that. I hope you did. I want to give a shout out here to the Farm and Rural Ag Network, which we are a proud part of. You can learn more about this show and other shows in the Farm and Rural Ag Network by going to farmruralag.com. Also, I want to give a shout out to those of you who have been kind enough to leave us a rating and review. Really does help spread the word about this show. Uh, the latest one here is from Matt Westerhouse. Matt, thanks so much uh, for leaving this review. He says, powerful content and guests. Thank you, Tim, for bringing such influential individuals and content to the masses. Your podcast has helped to keep me on track and think in new ways as I embark on my own journey as a young entrepreneur. Keep up the good work. I learn something new each week. Matt, thank you so much, buddy. Appreciate leaving that review. And if you haven't left one yet and you're listening, I would really appreciate it. I think it'll take you a max of 30 seconds. Hop on there uh, on iTunes, leave us a rating and review and let others know that there's some really cool stuff happening in the world of agriculture. Thanks so much. We'll be back next week. for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit futureofag.com, that's futureofagag.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.